is the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Today, fishing for microbial resistance genes in community drinking water, Climate Science 101, the story of your life in board game or tablet format, and seed saving in India, facing down corporate germplasm monopoly. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Brett Stevens of the New York Times thinks Woody Allen has gotten a bum deal. The American filmmaker was never tried in court for sexually molesting his adopted daughter, Dylan Farrow, Stevens opines, but in the court of public opinion, he's been convicted of that crime, and now the poor man is a pariah. Brett Stevens doesn't seem to be similarly outraged on behalf of other famous men in the entertainment industry, like Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey, who've yet to see the inside of a courtroom for sexual assault and may never will. Why, Stevens asks, quickly answering himself, because those guys are almost certainly guilty. Jaw-droppingly, Stevens goes on, quote, the reason they have not been spared is because they are guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The facts, not the allegations, prove it, unquote. Someone needs to tell Brett Stevens about this thing, about not having your cake to eat and then still have it to eat another day. If the court of public opinion isn't a real court, which it isn't, of course, that was Stevens's entire point, then he cannot rationally claim that the court of public opinion proved that Harvey Weinstein was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, while at the same time insisting that it can do no such thing for Woody Allen. Beyond the hypocrisy of claiming that public opinion fails the requirements of due process in Woody Allen's case, but meets them in Harvey Weinstein's, the very notion that due process can or should be applied to public opinion is misguided. Due process is a legal concept that governs the selection and presentation of evidence in actual trials, in actual courtrooms, but the law cannot reach all injustices. Not all wrongs are crimes in a legal sense, and many wrongs that do break the law aren't adjudicated for all kinds of reasons prosecutorial discretion, statute of limitations, and, as with the sexual molestation charges against Woody Allen, the reluctance of a parent, Mia Farrow, to put a young child through the trauma of facing her abuser in court. In a democratic society, the court of public opinion is often the only venue in which people like Woody Allen, Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, Mark Halperin, Matt Lauer, are brought to account and held responsible for their deeds. Naturally, this doesn't make them, or their apologists in the media, like Brett Stevens, happy. But it does give victims like Dylan Farrow some measure of justice. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg.
Hello, little schoolgirl. Can I go home with? Can I go home with you? Tell your mother and your father that Rose is schoolboy too. Woke up this morning, woke up this morning, man I could hardly, man I could hardly see. Well, and had on blue this morning, I was all messed up and down. Come on, be my baby. Come on, be my baby. I'll buy you diamonds. I'll buy you diamonds, ring. Well, don't come and be my little woman. Ain't gonna buy you dog and thing. I'm gonna buy me an airplane. Go buy me an airplane. Go fly all over the. Go fly all over this town. Don't even find the woman I'm loving. Ain't gonna let my airplane down. Come on, Doctor Ross. Native of Tunica, Mississippi, and Helena, Arkansas, Dr. Isaiah Ross. Access to clean drinking water, lack of access, is a huge problem throughout the global south, what some still call the developing world, up in reputably developed Canada, an astonishing statistic. One in five central northern Canadian communities have to boil their water before drinking it. That's not all. The antibiotic resistance genes associated with elevated healthcare-associated infection rates in hospitals are now showing up in the drinking waters of northern Canadian communities. Winnipeg microbiologist Ayush Kumar has been taking samples and is fishing for resistance genes. This is a huge problem. This is a crisis. The emergence of and proliferation of multi-drug resistance bacteria is considered huge in the, in, in the list of huge problems facing humanity. Am I, am I exaggerating? Or? No, you're not, actually. So uh, antimicrobial resistance is uh, now considered one of the biggest threats to human health, and it's believed that by 2050, antimicrobial-resistant infections will be killing more people uh, than cancer and road accidents uh, kill combined today. Uh, antimicrobial resistance uh, uh, 
infections uh, have been a problem uh, uh, for humans. And uh, with, the, with the discovery of antibiotics, uh, that changed. Uh, so, you know, uh, 100 years ago, somebody could die from just getting an infection after shaving or getting, getting infection from, you know, gardening, uh, if they cut themselves. And then antibiotics really changed everything. Uh, and I just read somewhere uh, yesterday that it is believed that antibiotics alone have added up to 20 years in our life to our lifespan uh, since their discovery. Uh, so we are living 20 years more because of antibiotics. So infections are not killing us. But now the fear is that we are probably going back to that era because of this prevalence of antimicrobial resistance. Because we're overusing antibiotics. That's part of the problem. So I think uh, you know there are uh, overuse and misuse is certainly certainly the challenge. Uh, we have to also keep in mind that resistance is inevitable. So if we use antibiotics, bacteria will get resistant uh, to these antibiotics. They, they grow faster than us, they divide faster than us, they can mutate faster than us. Uh, so we'll always be sort of playing a catch-up game. So, uh, so that's inevitable. But I think we are sort of speeding up that process even more because we are, uh, we are as you said, overusing and, and misusing antibiotics a lot. Now, Ayush, can you tell me how it was that you came to be interested in the prevalence of resistance genes and multiple resistant bacteria in drinking water supplies of First Nations communities and in Canada and one in particular in northern Manitoba. How did you get into, into that? So this was actually an, um, uh, this sort of an interesting story. So I met with a colleague here um, in uh, the Department of Soil Science, uh, Dr. Anamike Ferenhorst, and she is uh, funded by uh, a program uh, called CREATE uh, program. So she's the director of CREATE H2O, which is sort of looking at water security in uh, in First Nation communities. So we got in touch, and uh, and uh, Anamike uh, wondered if I would be interested in looking at prevalence of antibiotic resistance genes in these communities because what uh, she told me was that they were finding very high number of bacteria. Uh, coliforms and E. coli from uh, various water sources, drinking water uh, and source water from, from these communities. So she was wondering if I would be interested in looking at uh, if, you know, if uh, antibiotic resistance genes were as prevalent as well. So, so then we started looking at some of the samples and we were, uh, we were uh, just astonished to see how prevalent antimicrobial resistance genes were in these water samples from our First Nation communities. And you can actually go into water sources and, and look for the genes. You're not looking for the bacteria themselves. You're looking for and can actually detect the actual genetic material. That's correct. So what we are doing is instead of uh, instead of culturing bacteria, what we are doing is we are we go to uh, we collect our water sample, and that comes from you know the source water from phys uh, water treatment plant from households. Um, and uh, and what we do is we instead of culturing bacteria, we just isolate total DNA from uh, from these water samples. And then once we do that, then we use uh, a, a fairly very sensitive technique, which is quantitative um, uh, real-time PCR, where we can detect for specific genes, and we target specific 
genes that are involved in resistance to antibiotics and then we can detect their presence. And as I said, we've been finding very high number of these genes in, uh, in some of these water samples. And I'm looking here in, the, in your publication, you actually list the, the genes that you found. I'm, I'm looking for them, it's like uh, AMP-C, TET-A, MEC-A, beta-lactamase genes, you know, TEM type, there's a whole slew of these carbapenemase genes, the NDM, the, the, the New Delhi metallolactamase, isn't that some kind of a rare antibiotic resistance gene from India? It is a fairly new gene that was discovered first in India, but it has since then spread throughout the world. So it was, uh, the gene resides on a plasmid. Now plasmid is basically extra chromosomal DNA material, which is found in bacterial cells. And uh, because it's not part of the chromosome, they can exchange this genetic material quite easily. And what we have seen is right after it was first reported from, uh, from India, it is now found everywhere. So it has basically spread uh, all around the globe. And then, like this is a list of like a dozen, I mean, they're familiar, these genes are familiar to molecular microbiologists, but one reads somebody of, with general understanding gets the impression that there are these scads of really strange antibiotic resistance genes floating around in the population. And when you go up to Island Lake in Manitoba and do some sampling, you find these genes. I find that that's really, that's amazing. Correct. So this is, uh, so the way we, uh, we uh, when we targeted some of these genes, and of course there's a wide uh, variety of and very large number of genes that are uh, responsible for resistance to different antibiotics. And what we were looking at was we were looking at some specific antibiotics and then the genes that cause resistance to those antibiotics. So we looked at, for example, AMP-C, which causes uh, resistance to drugs like penicillin or antibiotics like penicillin. TET-A is uh, responsible for resistance to tetracycline. Um, MEC-A is the gene which is responsible for resistance in MRSA or methicillin-resistant staph aureus. Sometimes it's also referred to as MRSA, which causes uh, resistant skin infections. And the carbapenemase genes, these are these are, they provide resistance to one of the last sets of antibiotics that are available. Exactly. So carbapenems are considered last resort antibiotics for a lot of treat, uh, infections, uh, uh, and carbapenems are primarily used when everything else fails. And he, so we looked at seven different carbapenemase uh, genes as well, and uh, and we found those were present in these water bodies as well. So uh, so water bodies as well as drinking water samples. Uh, How do they get there? That's a good question. Uh, we don't know. Uh, uh, we don't know how do they get there. I mean, this is pretty isolated. This is like. Uh, you know, an hour and a half flight north of north of Winnipeg in the bush. That's correct. So a lot of these communities are actually isolated communities. Uh, now, one thing to keep in mind is that resistance genes uh, can be present anywhere. Uh, uh, people have shown resistance genes to be present in permafrost. They've seen resistance genes to be present in uh, caves that were sort of hidden for millions of years. Uh, However, uh, it's the selection process which is critical, where, which is where the human, in, human intervention comes into place. And what selection process, what I mean by that is that uh, if there is a bacterium with one resistance gene, resistance to say antibiotic A, and if we somehow have 
lot of antibiotic A going into our environment, then the bacterium with that gene uh, will have an advantage over other bacterial species. And this way we can select for bacteria that is resistant to antibiotic A. And then you get very high number of those, uh, uh, those genes, those bacteria, and of course they, they pose higher risk to human health. So what is causing selection for these genes is something we don't know. We don't have clinical data from these communities, so we don't know how much of antibiotic is used in these communities by individuals who live there. We don't know if there are other agents that are in the environment that would co-select for resistance uh, genes. So that's actually a question that we sort of, uh, uh, or the answer for this question we're grappling with because we really don't know what is causing the selection. But what I can tell you is that when we also, in this study, we also ran controls with Winnipeg water samples and we didn't really see any of that any of these genes in our water samples from, from the city. So is the presence of these genes in a community like Island Lake simply indicative of the fact that, you know, First Nations communities across the north have just poor water quality in general, which leads to the accumulation of these things? Like there's this, this statistic that like one in five First Nations communities have had boil water orders advisories issued in Canada over the last number of years. So uh, drinking water quality up north is really poor. That's correct. So the, I, I think the, uh, that's exactly what the reason is, uh, that you have very high number of bacteria in, in, in these water bodies or, or drinking water that people are actually consuming. And then these bacteria carry antibiotic resistance genes. So the solution to the problem, uh, uh, the simple solution is let's clean up get rid of all the bacteria from water body and then we don't have to worry about from drinking water samples and then we don't have to worry about resistance because resistance genes are coming from from bacteria so you're absolutely right that the water sample and these are water samples that people are drinking in some of these households has such high number of bacteria that it's hard to imagine uh, that uh, you would see something like that in, in, in Canada. So you would see something like that, or you would find a Canadian drinking a water, like, a water sample like that. You sort of associate this kind of poor drinking water quality with the so-called developing world. Exactly. Or the so, global south, not, not, not northern Canada. Exactly. So countries where, um, you know, where water treatment facilities are not proper, uh, people are struggling to, uh, for clean, nice, clean drinking water, um, Canada has lots of fresh water uh, and we, most of us, uh, most of Canadians actually, uh, our water is really clean. We, you know, we can open any tap in the city and drink water without getting, uh, without worrying about getting diarrhea or anything like that from that water because water is clean. However, there are these pockets uh, within Canada which are, if you go there, water is probably as bad as, as, as unhealthy or as unsafe as anywhere you would go on this planet. So, so this is something which is astonishing. And one of the things I would like to point out here is that the study that you're talking about was done in a community that actually has a water treatment plant. So, so we're not talking about a community that doesn't have water treatment plant, which is a different problem altogether. But here we, we're talking about a community that actually has water treatment plant and that water treatment plant is working perfectly fine because when we take water samples from the treatment plant after the treatment, that water is as good as water from Winnipeg. 
but as soon as that water enters the distribution system, which could be water tankers, which could be pipes, that's where the contamination occurs. And then, so you have a water treatment plant in a community that's working perfectly fine, but it's still people are not getting clean and safe water to drink. So it's, the problem is, uh, so when we talk about solution to this problem, we talk about having each community with their own water treatment plant, and yes, of course that's needed, but at the same time, I think we have to think a step beyond that, and we need to make sure that the distribution system is properly maintained as well, because if the distribution system is not, then we will keep seeing what we saw in our study here. Uh, routinely we see drinking water advisories and a lot of these advisories, about one third of those are because of poor microbiological quality of the water. So that is, it is a systemic problem rather than just associated with one community. But, uh, but that's one of the ch challenges that, you know, if, if there are people who are drinking this kind of water, uh, where E. coli counts are very high and where you have genes for uh, methicillin resistance or MECA gene in there. So you can just only imagine uh, what the rates of infection would be and what would be the treatment options uh, for individuals who get uh, infect infected through their water samples. We More and more Canadians need to be aware of this problem and we need to realize that there are some of us uh, when it comes to just access to clean and safe water, which has been declared as a basic human rights, uh, human right by United Nations, uh, some of us, uh, some of the Canadians don't have access to that. Ayush Kumar, thank you so much for joining me on the Green Blues show. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much. Ayush Kumar is Associate Professor in the Department of Microbiology at the University of Manitoba. For more information about microbial drug resistance, go to greenplanetmonitor.net. Here's a song about a completely different kind of infection, Blind Blake, a 1929 recording.
in Richmond, Indiana on the 20th day of June, 1929. Hookworm Blues. Arthur Blind Blake must have been familiar with the little creature. Speaking of stuff you know about, here's a little something I produced over a decade ago featuring several guys who knew and still do what they're talking about. In order of appearance, I'll fully identify them at the end, Climatologists Ed Carmack, Jay Malcolm, Henry Hengevelt, John Fife, and Gordon McBain. Earth Climate 101. Atmosphere is a well-mixed chemical system. Our atmosphere is warm enough to support life because of a natural greenhouse effect. You know, if we didn't have some greenhouse gases, our, our planet would be a lot cooler. Uh, it's greenhouse gases and cloud, incidentally. There's, there's cloud involved as well. If the atmosphere with its greenhouse gases were not present, um, then the Earth's surface would be like that of the moon. It would be about 33 degrees colder today, an average temperature of about minus 18 degrees Celsius. Very simply, climate is average weather. Each location in the Earth has its own unique climate. That climate of that region describes not only how temperature and precipitation and wind and uh, amount of sunshine, cloud cover uh, will average out month by month, but also how it will normally vary from one year to the next. Of course, we're all familiar with weather systems and changes from day to day. These changes are not uh, predictable past a few days, as you probably know. These are not, weather systems are not deterministic. Um, however, if you do average many, many weather systems and weather over the course of months, years, and decades, you will produce a climate. And this is the long-term time average state of the atmosphere. There's a number of factors that determine climate, of course. Uh, first of all, on a global scale, it is the balance between the incoming solar energy that is absorbed within the atmosphere in the oceans and the outgoing heat radiation. Uh, but then within the globe, uh, latitude, cloud cover, uh, land versus ocean, uh, mass, uh, and a whole bunch of other variables affect how our climate may change with time and also the variability. Typically, for example, interior continental regions will have a higher degree of variability 
because uh, land masses cool and heat much more rapidly than oceans do, whereas a coastal climate will be uh, much more uniform over time. At sort of climate timescales, the important processes, of course, are the sun. You know, the sun is the thing that drives the, the climate system. The sun heats the system. It is a closed system. There's more heating at the equator than there is at the pole. That can't go on forever, otherwise the equator would boil up and the poles would, would freeze out. Um, what has to happen is systems of motion have to develop these various motions together. When you average them over long periods of time, produce what we call the climate. Storms and so on that, that act to transport this heat from the equator to the poles and produce a balance. So then a long time average, you will see the, the, the climate system in, in balance. The greenhouse effect was originally hypothesized by the French mathematician Fourier in 1827 when he wrote a paper suggesting that the atmosphere contains um, rare gases, um, uh, trace gases that function very much like what he hypothesized at the time, the glass in a greenhouse. Uh, what it does is allow incoming solar energy to penetrate through the atmosphere relatively unimpeded by these gases. The most important greenhouse gas is water vapor itself. It represents uh, about two-thirds of the natural greenhouse effect. Uh, next is carbon dioxide, which represents another 25%. And then you have a number of other gases, methane, nitrous oxide, and, and other trace gases that make up about the remaining 10% the outgoing heat radiation is absorbed by these gases much like a blanket on our bed might absorb our outgoing heat and then re-radiate in all directions much of it back down okay we can now measure that quite accurately with satellite data we know very accurately how much sunlight energy is coming in we know how much of it is being absorbed by the atmospheric system uh, we can measure how much is being radiated back out to space and we know what the real temperature of the surface is. We find that the greenhouse effect, quite naturally occurring greenhouse effect, warms the surface by about 33 degrees Celsius. So it's the difference between a livable planet and a frozen one. Everyone learns in high school that you apply a certain force and you get an acceleration which if applied long enough results in a certain velocity and the ocean and atmosphere function exactly the same way as that uh, as fluids particularly the atmosphere is very compressible so it's sort of like a sponge it goes in and out as you put more pressure on it uh, the chaotic nature comes in in a, in a prediction sense is because first of all we cannot observe the present state of the ocean or the atmosphere in infinite detail. So when we're trying to predict what it's going to be like tomorrow in the case of the atmosphere or next month in the case of the ocean, the first problem is we don't know exactly what it is now. And the second problem is that it is basically what we call in a mathematical sense nonlinear. That small perturbations, a small uncertainty, not knowing that the wind over Prince George is uh, 10 meters per second and when we thought it was 9, at one meter per second error, which doesn't seem like much, suddenly over, or could over a course of 24 or 48 hours, 
result in a wind over uh, Edmonton that is 50 meters per second as opposed to the 10 we thought it was going to be. These nonlinear effects can result in, in, in uncertainties that can amplify, become very much larger in time. It's a very nonlinear system. By nonlinear, we mean that if something causes a change to happen, you don't see an immediate cause-effect relationship. It's a very uh, discontinuous system where uh, you may see a delayed reaction in the climate system, and it may appear in a far different way than you might expect. There are so many different variables that come into that feed back on each other in very complex, intricate sort of ways. Uh, so that, in essence, what is uh, what we mean by a complex system, it it is uh, very hard to understand. It involves the atmosphere, the oceans, uh, what we call the cryosphere, which is basically the uh, sea ice floating on the oceans as well as the land ice at the two poles. It involves the biosphere. All of these interacting on different time scales and in very complex ways. Ed Carmack is adjunct professor in the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of British Columbia. Jay Malcolm is a professor in the Faculty of Forestry at the University of Toronto. Henry Hengevelt, for years, Environment Canada's advisor on climate change and chief public popularizer of climate science. John Fife with Environment Canada's Center for Climate Modeling and Analysis and Canadian climatologist Gordon McBain, currently the chair of the board of the trustees for the Canadian Foundation for Climate and Atmospheric Sciences. Phew! Let's listen to some blues. This is Sunnyland Slim. Woman, I ain't gonna drink no more whiskey. Uh, this title is tune, I ain't gonna drink no more. I don't know how true that's gonna be. And the words of this tune was written back some time ago. Some of it started out along the 40s and some end up in the 52. One of my, some of my own version of it, I ain't gonna drink no more. Cause you and whiskey taking advantage of me You know I ain't gonna never drink no more whiskey Cause you and liquor taking advantage of me You keep me blue and disgusted can ever live and be When I draw my little money ooh, I just can't feel satisfied Woman, when I draw my little money ooh, I just can't feel satisfied
Sunnyland Slim, woman, I ain't going to drink no more whiskey. Hmm, I've heard that before. Imagine a board game that lets you depict your whole life or some aspect of it. Someone has created a tool of this sort designed for use by health professionals to tease out and document critical life issues and narratives. The Life Storyboard, it's called and an iPad version is on its way. I spoke with Life Storyboard creator, Robbie Chase. Full disclosure, Robbie is an old friend of mine. You're the creator, inventor of this thing called the Life Storyboard. How would you describe the the Life Storyboard? What is it? Well, uh, so initially in Sri Lanka, we were using psychometric survey questionnaires to look at post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and war exposures. So that was kind of state-of-the-art for doing field research. And it leaves a lot to be desired. Uh, It's not something that engages children or anybody in a conversation about what they experienced so much. So I was looking for uh, ways to make people more comfortable and able to express themselves across cultures. And so it's a this life storyboard is a visual tool. It's like a board game. And you map out onto the board in zones about internal feelings and identities and issues, uh, relationships, people. There's a timeline for things that happened in the past and so you can interconnect these different layers of experience and the external objects or relationships that uh, are involved in uh, talking about your experience. So you can, you see it. And uh, so you lay it out on the table, so to speak, and the conversation builds from those uh, uh those those connections that that that, uh, that are made, and the representation uh, that is achieved at the end of this, when it's all complete, you've got a board that's covered in all these these objects and and things that symbolize that denote in symbolic language exactly what this whole person's life experience has been in various dimensions. Would that be a a fair way of describing it? I mean, if somebody came along and looked at this thing when it was complete, they'd they'd have no way to interpret it. It's it's all symbolic. Yes, that's the sense. You can uh, tag uh, the essential elements of what they talk about. So... uh, uh, mind you, there's a conversation going on, and some things are are not necessarily storyboarded, um, but uh, it's but 
the storyboarding uh, helps to kind of scaffold a, a conversation around the experience that they're talking about. If things are sensitive or traumatic, people may wish not to have it storyboarded, but it's implicit and, and it's in the conversation. Other things are can be can ground the uh, more sensitive er aspects of the conversation. Um, so the storyboard is it's very open ended, and it's not just for uh, bringing out situations that are difficult to tell. It has all kinds of applications, but uh, using it in a trauma informed, sensitive way with uh, adults and youth and older children is seen as one of its stronger areas of application. But when it's all through and the person's complete and they look at this uh, their storyboard, is it something, was it fun putting it together? Was it, is it something that they can look at and they go, yeah, I mean, that's really exciting to see the way that happened. I think, I think they're all, it may not necessarily be fun, but it's it's intriguing, and it they identify with what's all that's there because it's it comes from the conversation they had, and they are participating in the creation of it. So they see reflected back in a picture form uh, what they've shared. And this, yeah, to an outsider who wasn't party to the conversation, may be unintelligible. And what, what's the advantage or the benefits to a person who, who is having their life story board done to, to have gone through this process? How does it help them? Well, many people, you know, uh, not just myself, think visually. They And words may not be the best way to access some of the experiences experiences they have or how to share it. Uh, people whose language is not, uh, is, is their second or third tongue, uh, they may have difficulty with English or the, the language of the counselor, the therapist or the interviewer. So this uh, lays out uh, people, places, events, aspects of their story in a way that they can identify with and then seeing them interrelated together on the same storyboard uh, I use the word scaffolding it it it, uh, it elicits more of the story it, it kind of grounds the elements and uh, so and you're selling these kits you're, you're distributing them these kits are now kind of all around a little bit all around the world being used by people and it took so much time to put these things together it's quite a technology actually physically manufacturing these things how many of these kits life storyboard kits are out there um and where uh and who's, well, who's using them right well so i started a small business to get these kits manufactured they're they're assembled manually. Um, it, we use, I call it fridge magnet technology. But the board is paper steel. 500 of them were manufactured and 180 are out in the world somewhere. Uh, I would say half have been sold, half have been distributed to uh, students and researchers uh, and 
And they're in all four, all seven continents. How many continents out there are out there? There's a bunch of them. They're all around the world. Mainly in Winnipeg, Manitoba and Ontario, but elsewhere in uh, BC and Quebec. Uh, a few in the States. Um, several went to Australia. Uh, two, three are in Bhutan. Bhutan and the Himalayas. That's right. Yeah, small country. I visited there on, on uh, and they were interested in, in the Life Storyboard for their emerging counseling um, training uh, program. Um, and uh, Latin America? Did we mention Latin America? Are there any in Colombia? <laughs> Actually, uh, one w w traveled to Colombia and was uh, demonstrated in Medellin to an uh, area of, uh, where counselors are supported women that uh, are exposed to uh, violence and, and risks because of the... Uh, the, the, the narco-terrorism that's endemic there. Um, so it went over quite well, uh, but uh, these uh, projects require funding in order to deliver training and, uh, um, you know, move move through the, the project, so. And so. it's complicated. It's I mean, I've actually never had my own life storyboard done. We'll have to do something about that. But I gather it's, I mean, it's kind of, Elaborate, it can be. Um, so, and there are all these different pieces that symbolize different things. Well, for a given application, you don't use certainly don't use all the pieces. You might use a third or a, a quarter of what's in the toolkit, and uh, and then for any use, I think you want to be efficient with your time and for therapists and counselors, no more than an hour. So you have to uh, adjust in within a session or over a, a series of sessions how you how you engage with it and what kind of process you take up. And that's more experience and skill dependent than it is something that's teachable, I would say. So the challenge uh, is, I think, how you package it and deliver uh, the training aspects. Is this the kind of a, of a game or an exercise that could be of use to people and instructive and entertaining, you know, enlightening to use just in, by ordinary people who enjoy playing board games and want to play a board game that kind of gets them into exploring their own life and their situation? Can you imagine a day when these things are sold... Uh, you know, by Milton Bradley or something, or something like that. Not to Milton Bradley. It's it's not a. It's there's a a playboard like games have, but um, I mean now that I'm comfortable using it, of course uh, I can storyboard all kinds of situations, uh, childhood memories, uh, life situations, uh, a future question that I don't know the answer to. But as you engage with the uh, storyboard and you see reflected back um, the elements that it kindles associations in your mind and it, I find it stimulates a lot of creativity. You can step out of your own vantage point to see what it is you, has been going on from a more objective, you know, bird's eye view. You can also look at the same material from someone else's 
vantage point and sort of step out of your life and look at those elements from someone else's point of view. So it mixes it up a fair bit. And many times I think it's like you're unpacking something that you never looked at before. You've you've got questions in your mind, you know there's issues and tensions there, but you're moving through it as you storyboard it. And with that comes uh, sometimes catharsis, sometimes insight. And uh, I mean, this can happen within oneself. You don't necessarily need a counselor or a therapist. You there. can do it yourself. Sure, once once you if you have a storyboard and know how it works. So I think it's a it's conceptually simple. Um, it takes some experience and and some uh, some patience, you know, to 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 see it in action. And then once you see how it works, uh, it there's many opportunities to use it. Now prospects for an iPad version. This is in the works. This is something you're aiming to to create, and that would be something to be able to do such a thing. Uh, without all the, the pieces and right. huge weighty box full of fridge magnets, you could so, actually do it on your on your iPad. Tell me about that briefly. Yeah, so this as a information system in this a visual schema, uh, you can have, it can be in a digital environment. So there is a prototype uh, on an iPad that emulates the, uh, the the play you know the the clicking and dragging and moving and and you can use some of the features of recording and screen grabs and things like that that digitally the what you need on the server side is the database to save retrieve analyze export into a, a larger database so that you uh, you could use the, your iPad as a, a, a survey collection, an interview tool. This may be for psychosocial reasons or it could be like basic public health epidemiology, household surveys. There's a different, but again, the advantage is that somebody being interviewed can see what it is there have said and see the formation of a, of the household members, the, for example, the, the their health, the health information, some of the experiences they've had, they, and so the, instead of a conversation that goes, you know, f f question by question by question in a linear way, this is more a, um, a, 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 you navigate through a conversation, and information is is accrued onto the storyboard in a more natural way. Thank you so much, Robbie Chase, for joining us on the Green Blues Show. Always a pleasure, Dave. Robbie Chase is a Winnipeg physician and community health specialist. For more information about the Life Storyboard, go to greenplanetmonitor.net. You are listening to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. <laughs> your conscience get you down Hold up your head, darling Don't let your conscience get you down 
Let your conscience be your guide. The late great Sonny Boy Williamson, Rice Miller, recorded at Chess Studios in Chicago in 1959. Robert Jr. Lockwood and Luther Tucker on guitars, Otis Spann on piano, Willie Dixon on bass, and Odie Payne on drums. Imagine being a fly on the wall at Chess Records Studios watching all these guys do their thing. May they all be playing together up in heaven. Inshallah. Digging deeper down into the vaults, Here's a little something from a trip into the foothills of the Himalayas to Dehradun, where renowned Indian ecologist and farmers' rights activist Vandana Shiva had established a biodiversity farm up and running to this day. Farmers from throughout India gather at the Navdanya Biodiversity Farm north of Dehradun in the foothills of the Himalayas. They've come to show off their seeds, trade a few varieties, and learn more about the importance of crop diversity. This is a rajma seed, and uh, all 20 varieties I, I have this seed. And there are so many varieties of these. Uh, we have uh, 300 varieties of these rajmas, different color. Uh, in Kerala, 29 varieties of bamboo are there. In India, it is 136 different varieties. Most of them are commercially viable bamboos. But these farmers are worried. The seeds they've bred and traded for generations are slowly being replaced by corporate, genetically engineered varieties that require costly chemical inputs. This, and the elimination of protective farm tariffs, is driving thousands of Indian farmers to suicide. Before Green Revolution, there were 50,000 rice varieties in India. And now, after uh, this industrial agriculture uh, introduced in India, now there are, you know, only 10 varieties are uh, grown in 80% of the land. It's the same with India's traditional oil seeds, says Rashmi Sharma, a plant chemist from northern Rajasthan. From uh, last uh, 10 or 15 years, here we are the promotions of uh, some Soya bean oil and sunflower, safflower, the uh, other oils, uh, 
on the cost of our oil seeds and pulses, replaced by the production of soya bean in uh, Madhya Pradesh, Gujarat, and uh, Rajasthan, and uh, and now we are importing the pulses and oil oils from outside India. India's farm crisis is linked to the liberalization of global trade and to the drive by corporate giants like Monsanto and Cargill to maximize profits by monopolizing the global seed supply. Carolyn Lockhart is the coordinator of the International Commission on the Future of Food and Agriculture. The large multinational corporations, the big agribusiness, are taking over the seeds and um, patenting seeds these large multinational corporations through the World Trade Organization are imposing these restrictions and limitations on how and what small farmers can grow. And uh, the Monsantos of this world will then have patented this seed and own the seed, thereby taking away the farmers' livelihoods and their rights to grow their own food, making them dependent Many of them are, having, are committing suicide as they grow more and more in debt. To make matters worse, the Indian government is bringing itself in line with World Trade Organization rules by enacting pro-corporate seed laws. A proposed seed law in 2004 provoked a storm of protest. The seed bill 2004 was, uh, was for, you know, uh, compulsory registration of the seeds and they were going to uh, accelerate the seed replacement which means that you know they wanted uh, they wanted farmers not to use the the traditional seeds and in that you know the seed exchange was also illegal there was uh, you know provision for uh, punishment or fine for 20000 to 2 lakh rupees which is too much Indian farmers, they can't really uh, afford it. And uh, then police can anytime prove, you know, and by opening your uh, store, house, you can't really say that, oh, this seed is, seed is from Monsanto or this seed is from uh, a farmer. Let Monsanto be called. And let them be put to trial. Let the government minister who's importing wheat be called. In response to the corporate seed threat, Vandana Shiva, Navdanya's founder, is calling on farmers to follow in the footsteps of Mahatma Gandhi and practice satyagraha, peaceful resistance and non-cooperation against unjust laws. In Gandhi's campaign, Indians flaunted British salt laws by marching to the sea to collect salt for themselves. Shiva is calling on Navdanya's 70,000 member farmers to save and trade seed, whatever the law may say. I've traveled the length and the breadth of the country, informed the farmers, did beach yatras, seed yatras, seed journeys, did public hearings, and collected five million signatures to submit to the Prime Minister. And the pledge of every one of these farmers was, you try and bring a law like this, we will disobey. We will engage in civil disobedience because we have to keep saving our seeds for the earth, for evolution, for our future generations. The heart of Navdanya's seed satyagraha is a network of 42 seed banks in 17 states throughout India. The Navdanya Biodiversity Farm has a seed bank of its own down a long path in the back of a crowded collection of gardens. Mm, so many variety of paddy here. How many? Mm, 380. 380. There's 380 variety of paddy. And vegetable seed? There's so many vegetable. 
लाइक मेथी पहाड़ी पालक ओके ओके वेजिटेबल वन ट्वेंटी वेराइटीज ओके एंड ऑयल सीड थर्टी वेराइटी मस्टर्ड एट वेराइटी राइ सेवन वेराइटी स्पीसीज फोर्टी वेराइटी एंड राजमा सेवेंटी फाइव The spirit of seed satyagraha is found in farmers like Baburash, a bamboo grower and craftsman from Kerala who actively trades seed no matter what the government says. He is asking some seeds of bamboo. I am ready to send it by courier post. Seed saving and exchanging and trading may become illegal against the law of in India. <laughs> it is not against the law of in India because we have to spread our seeds to other parts of of our country. The government cannot interfere in this matter because I think it is our birthright. Read more about Navdanya Earth University and Biodiversity Conservation Farm at GreenPlanetMonitor.net. That's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKUW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio, here in Winnipeg, and at CKUW.net. Subscribe to our podcast at GreenPlanetMonitor.net or around the world on iTunes. Tell everyone you know. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We're both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. See you again next time. Bye-bye.